I never thought we would be as fortunate to talk to a Top Chef finalist. I mean, it kind of just came too easy, and obviously we're doing something right. Um, David Christian of Victor, who was a Top Chef finalist and probably the most straight-shooting guy I ever thought I'd be talking to who, who runs a kitchen in Toronto, but more so because... He's in an industry that is basically, for lack of a better term, garnished mm. with a lot of chefs that their personality comes out first and then their approach to the kitchen comes second. And it's the opposite with David. And he was introduced to us from our first guest, Jesse Valens, who quite a few other guests coming through the series were introduced to us by. But David was the perfect kind of ideal chef that really introduced us to a regimented approach to kitchen life and how somebody can get to the point where David is currently and the path he's taken to get there and it's a big honor I mean I, I say that a lot and it's an honor to have everybody but it, it it was a real shock to have someone like David Christian come and talk to us for a full hour and everything he says is worth holding on to with a lot of value because he clearly is one of the more renowned chefs in the city. Victor Restaurant is at the Hotel Le Germain, 30 Mercer Street. Brunch is their specialty on the weekends, Saturdays, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Same with Sundays, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Go say hi to David. Again, tell him that you heard him and us on the Never Sleeps Network and invite me to your next brunch. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash network and show your meal, post your meal. It's got to be the most simple yet tasty brunch meal you're going to have in the city. Enjoy Speaking Duck Episode 2 with David Christian. so grateful to have you david christian um so formal of me to use your full name right now but uh again thank you to uh jesse valens over at the saint for um you got you got to tell me how you know jesse and and basically what encouraged uh you to come on here even just with his nod of approval uh i i ran into jesse by fluke through a through another colleague mike frank when i worked out on the east end and uh, Jesse would just happen by to Mike's restaurant at the time um, for a beer. And the three of us would end up just talking shop for, you know, for too long. Uh, we all kind of left those different jobs and landed in other ones. But I, I stayed in touch with Jesse and uh, we go out for breakfast from time to time, and catch up and continue talking. Now, when you say breakfast with Jesse, Jesse tells me he's a diner guy. There's a specific diet. Is that the one I'm talking about? <laughs> That's what I mean by breakfast. Yeah. Which diner is that again? Uh, the Patrician. That's right. Uh, but but he, uh, since getting uh, becoming a father, um, sort of stays out in his hood out 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 east a little bit, and we go to the the Detroit diner because uh, his Fergus, his son, kind of likes it there. Yeah, I know, and that's uh, that's the be-all, end-all right now with Jesse trying to show him all the different foods that Toronto has to offer, especially because they're from Scarberia, 
he I, I saw a post Jesse posted the other day about finally being able to show his son what a roti is. <laughs> when you like really pass it on the tradition of being yeah. from Scarborough. I think Fergus is what two two and a bit now, and uh, so yeah, I could see that being really, very exciting for a, a foodie father. Do you have kids? I'm about to have kids. Come a on, kid, a child, a girl. Congratulations! Um, yes, in November. Uh, I think it'll be Halloween. Okay, but uh, the if, due date hoping. is November sixth. All right. And where do you where did you grow up, and where do you live now? I grew up in Niagara, straight across the lake, um, small town called Grimsby, uh, which is not so so small now. It's between Hamilton and St. Catharines. Um, I began my apprenticeship in uh, Hamilton, and uh, as soon as I went to school and sort of tasted the city for the first time at George Brown College, I I left the small town. Now, I usually ask this of most chefs who said that they went to a culinary school. What do you think culinary school teaches you now compared to what it t- taught you then? And do you think that it's important that people going into the industry today, do they have to go to the culinary school di- direction? Do they have to go through that? Are they learning more as an apprentice? Can they learn from being a dishwasher all the way up to? I think you have to have been a dishwasher or started at the bottom. You have to. You you have to feel what it's like to do all of that work. You need to get to a place later on in your life that you appreciate having a dishwasher as opposed to um, not having a dishwasher. And you also have to know that you can always, in any emergency situation, fall back on knowing that you can do that. You have to climb the ladder uh, and have accomplished everything that's on that rung before you can move to the next rung so that one, you can teach it to someone else, and two, you eliminate a bit of fear in your own self that you know that you can always do those things when forced to. And which happens quite a bit. I mean... Yeah, in a small restaurant, and right. as a restaurateur, as, a, as an owner, as a chef, you know, you're not just a cook. And, and the chef that thinks that that's all they're going to do or direct people on how to cook... That's just not the case. You you have to have gone through so many of these life lessons and, and work lessons just so that you can manage your colleagues, share stories, become a leader, become a, a colleague, become a friend, become uh, someone they can trust knows how to do all of those little jobs that they're learning how to do. Now, Jesse, we're going we're gonna to talk about him just a bit only because he was definitely sure. the reason why uh, he, he, he recommended you coming onto the show. And again, thank you very much. To Jesse, um, you have to wear so many hats in Toronto when you're working in a kitchen because you would think there'd be enough people who want to work the line or there'd be enough staff in a kitchen to do everything for you. But it's pretty much the opposite in this city. You're always looking for up and comers. You're always looking for somebody who's willing to jump in the line and and dish, wash the dish. Do you find that? yourself like it's kind of a revolving door sometimes for these kind of in-between jobs i don't know if if that's the right term for them but you know do you ever find that you're understaffed more than you're overstaffed in toronto as a rule kitchens run understaffed um if you're to have the romantic vision of of a brigade system in europe or in in america for that matter Kitchens are enormous. There's there's people to do all of these small phonetical jobs. They just have more population, so they need to employ more people to keep the world's tur- the world turning. But I mean, with with fewer population and 
really high taxes and uh, a high cost of living, we're forced to employ less people to make our ends meet in a, in a very, very tough margined business. So the chef, once they get to that top rung, is forced to wear so many hats simply because they can't afford to pay all these other people all along the way. And subsequently, you're going to have to work lunch shifts and dinner shifts because you can't afford to have a lunch sous chef and a dinner sous chef. So you're going to have to play, you know, you're going to have to choose to be one of them. Um, of course, then you've got to retire into the office and get a bit of that administrative stuff done and out of the way so that you can get back to what it is that you really wanted to do in this life, which was put food on a plate, you know, apply heat to meat and make magic happen. Um, we're going to go through your day. Sure, we're gonna, sure. We're going to get to that. Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, I, I, I'm quite fortunate, I think, when we talk about the revolving door is that I have found a great restaurant. I have found a great home, which I've been in the, for the last eight years, uh, Victor Restaurant. And with that security, I'm able to employ people who also feel secure. We pay a, a decent wage. We have benefits. Our, our kitchen is large enough and all on one floor that we don't have to continually run down crickety stairs and down dark alleyways to find, you know, our, our food and our equipment. We have a clean environment. And, um, you know, those types of stresses and strains keep people around longer. And I'm very much hands-on in all of those different things. I think I've climbed a lot of those different rungs of the ladder so I have a lot to offer to young cooks, but also to my support staff and my junior managers simply by telling funny stories just because I've gone through some some hardships in the restaurant industry. I, I sometimes equate the restaurant, the kitchen, to almost like um, pirates on the open sea. <laughs> You know, it, it, you learn by experience, you learn by these funny stories, sure. but I mean, there was no real, everybody kind of knows what their role is, but unless there's this kind of community understanding that you're all here to help each other learn and move forward, you know, it's, there's always going to be that chaos, but this kind of idea of an organized chaos can only exist in places like the open sea, which I equate to the kitchen, <laughs> because think about it, you know, being overloaded with orders is like getting hit by a storm. You know what sure. I mean? And then sometimes when you don't have enough men on deck, people are going to be experiencing new parts of the kitchen. You know, maybe someone just does garnish and now they're doing fish and then they get to do meat, proteins. You know what I mean? It, it, sometimes when a storm hits, you kind of just have to have all hands on deck. And it's, yeah. and, but it, I know it's, it's no, fun, it, but it's it, so true. It, it's true. And if, you know, I've the more a, you're talking about the, the storm and weathering it and pirates, the Caribbean and what have you, it, it sounds familiar. Doesn't it? Sure. I mean, I'm sure with a few kitchen managers you've seen, you, you've seen quite a few black beards and, and, and gray and beards tattoos and tattoos. And yeah, and they all well, speak like pirates now, now too. Well, so. that, I also want to talk to you about <laughs> that because I, I followed you a bit on Top Chef. Um, and you come across very, I don't, I'm not, and I'm not trying to be, cause I would like to think that this is what's missing these days is you're very traditional. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? Um, just to give our audience an understanding, like you're a very normal looking guy in comparison to a lot of the chefs that you see today who are more into it. 
as a stylistic approach than they are a traditional approach. You know, I, I don't trust very many chefs who look the part. It, you know what I mean? Like, especially today's chef, the younger ones especially, it's too much of a rock star mentality for me. And especially with the idea that every chef thinks they're going to be on TV now, so they have to have a look. And their food is not speaking enough for them, clearly, because then they have to cover their entire body. Like, listen, <laughs> I have no problem with that. And, and I'm very and I'm very new school like that, too. I'm a, I'm a good mix of both. But, you know, tradition speaks for itself. Simplicity speaks for itself. Yeah, I'm I'm at a funny place. Uh, are you about to go get some tattoos? Is that the funny place no, you are? Are you no, about to go no, get no. like a face tattoo or something? Is that how? No, gonna... if we were talking about being a traditionalist or being uh, a chef of that era, those were the people who taught me. That's that's how I learned to be a, a chef and and run a restaurant. Was is quite regimented. Sure. And you know that's that's what I know. That's what I knew. Um, I'm terrified of needles, so I'm not about to go and get a, a tattoo anywhere. Especially on your face. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, if you were to sort of take uh, Michael Statlander and, and uh, uh, Jamie Kennedy and, and those two, who I, I look up to very, very much, um, both very traditionalists, um, they were sort of Toronto's early celebrity. And... That's that's all you heard about for a very long time. And, uh, you know, then I sort of jumped onto the scene at a very early age and was extracted from just going about my day to becoming something of, uh, you know, a newspaper media darling. And I was being compared to people who were 15, 20 years my senior. Um and then I had to sort of play to that for a, a number of years. And now I've just turned 40, but really my experiences are of that, of somebody who is 55 or 60. And I'm now sort of forced to compete or, or play in those two different spectrums, this, this sort of senior traditionalists, but I, I still also am of the same caliber, the same, I think, uh, trend-setting standard, or, or I'm not finished learning, or I'm not finished pushing the envelope of those who are, you know, uh, 20s to 30. Um, so it, it is a very interesting scenario that I find myself in, in this profession, but um, I also am happy and actually quite thrilled to have been through all of that fad and, and whatnot to have found my place and and to understand who I am as a cook and a chef and soon to be a well a husband and soon to be a father what do you think that's going to change for you just you know I mean hours are difficult enough for you I've put so much into this profession that uh I, I'm I'm confident and happy to say that um you know, I'm through a lot of that 14-hour, 15-hour day stuff. Right. Um, I'm through a lot of that time where I'm trying to carve my own uh, destiny. Uh, you know, I've proven a lot of that to, to myself, I think, probably most importantly, which then allows me to spend a lot of that energy you'd spend on doing that to being a good husband, to being uh, a parent, 
um, and to being involved in in family and um, so the work and in the restaurant are still so ingrained in me for sure and so important that's my living that's my livelihood but I'm 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 uh, ecstatic to have gotten to a place at, at a relatively fair age to find and strike balance now I asked you this before we didn't get quite an answer do you live close to the restaurant um, let's let's the restaurant is Victor is in Hotel Le Germain on Mercer Street, which is a, a small little side street just south of King between uh, Blue Jay Way and John. It's an, a neighborhood in an area that's about to explode. It is exploding, especially with the, the likes of the film festival having just ended. And, um, you know, many people don't know Mercer Street, but they're about to. It, it's going to be that secluded side street that... Um, just off radar, but uh, but about to be on it. What's the main? Uh, what is a sandwich in between? Just so people know, it's between John and Peter, or John and Blue Jay's Way, uh, um, just one street south of King. And do you live close? Do you live in the city? I live uh, in the city, um, straight up uh, the university line to uh, uh, Spadina, Saint Clair area. Now, growing up where you did, I guess west, we'll call that. Uh, southwest. 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 Was Toronto always on your radar? Is Toronto making it? I always looked at the CN Tower. I would bike <laughs> to the edge of the lake and sit and just look at the tower and the Sky Dome having been built and being built. And yeah, um, imagine I imagined myself living in the city from a very early age. Did you ever have road trips to Toronto and check out restaurants here? You know, party in Chinatown, taste the food in Toronto. Was it always kind of the mecca? from people from well, I Hamilton moved when and I was 18 uh, as soon as my apprenticeship began I I, uh, I had my my sights set on living in Toronto um, it wasn't a mecca really for me except for the culture and being in the city uh, until I started cooking at uh, at 18 I guess but as soon as I got my driver's license, I borrowed my dad's car, and without him knowing, I just said, you know, I'm going to borrow the car and go shopping. Yeah, no problem, son. And then I found myself in, in the beaches in Toronto looking at, you know, shorts and shirts and stuff at, at surf shops that I used to know from having uh, close family friends there. That's quite a trip. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I wanted to be here uh, from very early on. And when did you finally move here? What age? 18. Oh, you were here? Yeah, I, as soon as my culinary apprenticeship did begin. And, and because of my birthday and whatnot, and I finished school uh, right from grade 12, uh, I was only 17 when I started my apprenticeship. So, uh, uh, yeah, college started at 18, and, and I was here. Now, was it the first restaurants in Toronto that you worked in? And we can shout them out if they're still around or if they're nostalgic. But uh, tell us about that progression. What took you from those types of restaurants, which I'd like to know what they are, and how did they progress you to Victor? Um, I, it, it's somehow in my nature, and, and maybe just having started at 17, that I always wanted to be the first to have had these accomplishments. So rapidly burning through restaurants and, and getting as much exposure and as much experience as fast as possible uh, perhaps missing a few of the steps along the way, but uh, realizing that I missed them later on um, was important. And I suppose my first mentor was um, was Martin Coupri 
at Jump, and I was very fortunate while at school to be working full-time at Jump. It was just a, a, a two-month sort of casual gig. I learned how to make pizza, um, but Martin Coupri was the chef of the moment. Jump Restaurant was the, chef, the restaurant of the moment, and to be a part of that opening team and to see that was... Uh, uh, I was thrilled. That that was Toronto. That was um, exciting. You know, hours just went by so quickly. And, you know, you'd be up for school for six or seven in the morning and, and not get home until midnight or 11 or one. But it didn't matter. You were, you were, I was surrounded by the best cooks at the time. I was surrounded by the chef of the moment. And um, uh, it was, it was easy to take that kind of stuff back to school and share it with colleagues and students. Do you find that the mentorship that you got at such an early age helped you prepare for the culinary world, especially in a city that is always needing new bodies in it? Do you find that that's helped you move forward in this industry as somebody who is seen as a leader, as seen as somebody who's been around the block for a long time to share this experience with? Do you find a lot of people are knocking on your door now and they understand that, you know, for someone who's been mentored as early as you are now that you've become a mentor... You know, and, and you've been on TV and, and, and people are starting to recognize you a little bit more. Do you find that all those things are starting to have more resumes sent to you via email? And Yeah, and I, and I would say that that's a good reason why any great chef or, or uh, restaurateur would write a cookbook or would promote themselves or be on television. It's not only to gain attention with... Um, diners and and fill your restaurant but certainly to gain the trust and the confidence of people who want to work for the best and um yeah how would they know who uh you know rene rizepi is in in noma who would know this guy if it weren't for cookbooks and and uh pr nobody would um you use the word trust, and I've always used that word as a business term, but as a more of a understanding that the reason why people come onto Speaking Duck and come and talk to us, A, because they've been, usually it's because they're getting introduced to me from someone who's already been on the show. And that kind of friendship trust kind of parlays itself to myself and this kind of experience. I mean, we're a very new formatting program and we're very new on the scene, especially in the food scene. And that sense of trust will will take us a lot further. I mean, a lot of it is who you know, but we emphasize the what you know in the sense that I'm only going to have people that I trust to bring in other people that they trust. Mm. And, and it's funny, we use that word very loosely these days, but to me, that's everything. I mean, trust extends more to taste, you know, palate, but more so experience. Like if if the type of person and the type of chef I'm going to bring on here, you know, really wants to represent themselves wholeheartedly, truthfully, and really let themselves be exposed, that's the kind of trust we're looking for. And I don't think a lot of chefs today are prepared to be themselves, and to really expose themselves outside of their restaurant, outside of their food, outside of their element, because it's very new. I mean, yes, the Food Network exists. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of them are very cartoony versions of themselves. And I think that a lot of chefs today think they have to be something they're not. 
and I I personally see right through it. I see it in their restaurants. I see it in their cooking. I see it in their interviews. I don't like anything but casual. If I can't come and talk to you, you know, you're very well respected in Toronto. If I can't talk to you like we're old friends, that kind of trust, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to have a good interview. And it's it's amazing to be to see how many chefs kind of fall into this pretentiousness hmm. by accident because they think it's the way. I mean, it's not just right. chefs. It's not just chefs. You know, that's a lot of industries. But it's the people that I can sit down to and talk with and have a few tr- drinks with and or not or, you know, and just talk food. You know, in the end of the day, we all like the same, you know, late night Chinese food. We all like the same, you know, diner style, like simplistic, you know, in the end of the day, you could break it all down. Like gastro is really fun. Like all the science that's in, in food today, unbelievable. But in the end of the day, if I can't talk hamburgers and hot dogs with you, sausages, like Jesse and I. I could talk to that guy about sausages forever. I, I just don't. And as somebody who's part of the layman, you know, like I'm not a classically trained chef. I don't eat a lot of classically trained chefs foods all the time. So to me, I, I, I think if you can master something very simple, you can master something very extravagant. And it's those types of chefs that I think are the most interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of the trust again. I trust those types of chefs to come here. I've had a lot of interviews where we'll sit down and they only want to talk about their menu or how, you know, gastro they are or, you know, how they're only using futuristic methods of preparation. And it gets boring. You know, you try to, you see a lot on Top Chef. You see a lot on these shows. There'll always be one or two really out there guys who sometimes are really um, successful in the future because they have a market. But I find that the normal chefs that you see on television that aren't cartoony versions of themselves they're the same when you meet them in their restaurants they're the right. same all the time and it, that trust to me means more than anything as a patron because if i can't if if i'm in this fantasy world where you know television is gonna rule where i eat and you know decide on the menus i'm gonna order i'm i i think it just totally kind of takes away from my experience i mean i like the fact that i haven't been to victor and i'm and i'm interested in coming to victor because it's so new to me and, and because of all the good things i've heard from you but it's also because of who i've heard that from it's it's so much more exciting to go into a place and be overwhelmed than to have your expectations already so high that they could just never even be met. Toronto's really bad and, at that. I mean, that's happened that. for me in several different occasions. It's impossible to live up to the the idea of what you've read in a book or a magazine. Um, and so to be under the radar and to be constantly exceeding people's expectations, that's a, that's a wonderful place to be. Toronto is cursed for having as many restaurants as it has. And oh, it's always been a problem. And, it, you know, it, it seems as though there's more and more opening. But we, we're we not talking about all of the ones that keep closing. And uh, in order for all of these new restaurants to open, of course, many have had to shut down. It's interesting because I have a lot of friends who come and visit from out of the city and they and they want to what are the best restaurants 
Well, what's great about Toronto is, you know, we have a little India, we have a little Jamaica, we have a little Portugal. So there's really a best restaurant in each one of those areas, essentially. And then you have your, you know, Oliver Bonaccini's, you have your higher end stuff, you know, and and to, to me, a lot of those restaurants are just like picking hairs. To me... I can tell you the my favorite restaurants, but I'll tell you what they do really well. And I'll tell you what they do just okay. And I think that's more of a conversation that Torontonians need to have, more so than this is the greatest place ever. I had this cocktail, this $40 steak, and all you know what I mean? Like people don't people are so disconnected from food today. If if you wanted to have a great cocktail and a great steak, then to have found that place, you've done a very good job. Uh but you know, if you don't, if you feel like Indian, yeah, what is the best Indian? What it's not. What is the best restaurant in this city? It's it's what are you in the mood for? That's right. And then try and find it. That's right. And uh, we are blessed in that sense. I mean, so, uh, yeah, cursed in how many restaurants we have that, as independent as they are, are all serving the exact same things. Um, There's only so many uh, people. Well, how many times? How, how many distributors many, are there? How many know? kale Caesar salads do you, do you need? You know, it's not an innovative idea anymore. Have you ever seen a menu item that you thought was original that you did came out of your brain that you started seeing at other restaurants? Yes, and and when that happens, I mean, my ego likes to tell me that <laughs> it's because I came up right, with it and that right. they must have <laughs> somehow found out that I was doing it. David's got the biggest grin on his face but, right now. <laughs> and sometimes I, I think that that is true. I, I, I would hold that dear. But we are all like-minded and we're all using the same ingredients day in and day out. And we're all going to have that aha moment. And yeah, before having this podcast and and having millions of people listen to it, they had no idea of who I was. And so, of course, it was their idea. And uh, if they were to come to my restaurant and have a kale Caesar salad, they'd be thinking that I was ripping them off. Lou Reed once said, two chords is rock and roll, three chords is jazz. In the (laughs) sense that, you know, you're only going to be using the same chords to make the same songs all the time and how many bands are out there playing the same two chord songs yeah, and it's you know we're all you know that those who are constantly thinking about the same things over and over and over again are gonna bump into each other so let's talk more about victor how it all came about how it started what made you decide to finally go on out on your own and open up victor i want to hear about your menu where your inspiration comes from victor is been a uh, an eight-year project that I've been involved in, um, and it was all very much fall into uh, my lap. I'm very fortunate to be there. I think they're very fortunate to have me. Uh, Victor Restaurant is part of Hotel Le Germain, which was the first boutique hotel in Toronto. Um, the Germains, for all of their uh, wisdom and foresight, put a boutique hotel right on top of what used to be one of the great restaurants in Toronto, the Mercer Mercer Street Grill. Um, so that's where Mercer is and w- that's where we are, right? My restaurant is actually built on top of the Mercer Street Grill, which is a place that I used to go to uh, religiously. Um, it's funny how these things work yeah, out. Yeah. So... Uh, well, I mean, the, the truth of it, it was opened as a restaurant called um, 
It was opened by the Rubino Brothers, and they had uh, Rain, which was across the street. Wow, that's sending me back. Yeah, and um, they opened up an Italian restaurant, and I I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but it it didn't exist for long. Uh, the Germains subsequently took it over and opened up what was called Chez Victor, and uh, named Victor after their father, um, who unfortunately passed away within our first year of being open. But uh, as an homage to him, and uh, we started off as a, a relatively fine dining restaurant. Um, you know, our entrees were in the 35 to $40 range, which was certainly expensive. And we have a, a grand room. I mean, soaring three-story ceilings, uh, very lofty space, lots of windows. And, you know, it was slightly uh, just, it was unorganized as far as where the bar was and, and where dining tables were and proximity to each other and whatnot. But it, still a great place. Um, Michael Sullivan, who is my business partner now, uh, was hired on as a food and beverage director as we were uh, I don't want to use the term struggling but there was money left on the table let's just say that um, so Michael came in and, and tried to help us find some of those missing pieces and with that he and I struck a chord and um, decided we knew what the restaurant needed in 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 the sense of Let's do a little bit of a renovation. Let's bring it back up to date with uh, our competition. And um, we'll juggle the menu a little bit. We'll make it a little bit more uh, reasonable. And, and with that, we've had great success. So in 2010, we renovated. Michael and I became partners with the Germains. And uh, so again, I was an employee that then turned business owner, chef owner, restaurateur. Uh, so I didn't have to go through a lot of the the struggles that you know an independent might have to in in finding a space and in gutting it and in learning about all of the things that you've had no education in. Uh, I was very fortunate in having great partners in the Germains helping with that back end business uh, and obviously our lease and being just great people. And uh, Michael Sullivan, who's the front of the house, you know, guy was able to, who had also been through peaks and valleys in the restaurant industry, uh, was able to guide us through some of that uh, hardship. Four years later, we are, uh, again, having as good of a year as we could. So you must have seen a lot of different trends For in sure. Toronto. Any memorable ones or any, any you know trends that you saw yourself following that you didn't expect? Well, I definitely have seen a lot of trends. I've been cooking in the city for 20 years. And um, as a supporter and also then as a leader. And I'd like to think that even as a supporter, I was always thinking of what the next thing was going to be. And wouldn't not have paid much attention to any trend except for the fact that all of a sudden, a lot of people were doing what I was doing. Uh, and, and an example of that, and, and it's not just from me. I mean, I, I only speak what people have told me. But um, we, I was involved in a restaurant called Patriot. And Patriot was in 2000. 
uh, unfortunately, it sort of it just succumbed to all of the things that these businesses come succumb to. Um, but Patriot was opened as the first Canadian restaurant in Toronto. It was in the Colonnade Building, um, Bay and Bloor, and we very proud to wave the flag and and our wine list was 90% VQA uh and if not from Ontario or British Columbia um Montreal from New World so oh, sure. we weren't real supporters of uh of Europe or of um of even California it was sort of New Zealand South Africa um Australia Canada um and our food, the menus followed the seasons, and ingredients were found from as close to home as possible. Um, our menu changed regularly, if not monthly, and I was constantly sourcing different cheeses and different meats and vegetables from vendors and purveyors from across the country. Um, it was a mo- it was a movement, and and if I. I I have to think it was the start of something that you certainly know now as, as farm to table or as of uh, you know eating local and, and all of that kind of thing. But we were just slightly ahead of our time and having real estate uh, Bay and Bloor, which was quite expensive, we could never sell a bottle of wine from Ontario for what we needed to sell it for to pay for the seat, to pay for the real estate. And so our check average, which could have and should have been in any other restaurant, uh, 80 or $90 a person, was 40 or 50 just because that's what people would be willing to spend on products from close to home. That has slightly started to change, and we've got, not only are we willing to spend that much money on some of our own homegrown produce, but at the same time, our homegrown produce is worth that much money now. I mean, there's some great bottles of wine. There's great cheeses. There's excellent um, uh, organic produce and meat and fish that is worthy of those price tags. Um, but in 2000, I guess people were just afraid of it, and there was just still still too much stigma attached. What do you? Th- why do you think that that was? Well. I... You know, when you can reach it and and you can drive to it, you just have that assumption that it's it cheaper. should be cheaper right. because it's right here. I'm I live here. I should be able to have access to this. It should be accessible. I'm a local, but uh, the same things that we face as a nation that are as our problem is is that there's just not enough of our own to support ourselves. That things get as cheap as they get when you are live in Florida and you're a Floridian and you're eating Florida oranges. They're cheap because they're plentiful and Well I think that's the key. Sure. Right? Is 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 amount. Amount. And you know what? I mean last year and this year, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of grapes on the vine. You know, it's it's gonna be scarce. So it it's gonna be a treasure drinking something from local as opposed to it being um accessible. And we should we should uh, thank you know those who are enduring these hardships and uh, still going through and still surviving as a not thriving but as a very challenging winemaker or a very challenged business. Um, now you're referring to the winter that Toronto 
previously had. Yes. And that really affected our grape crop Peaches in Ontario. Yeah, and fruits. Grapes and all fruits. Strawberries, berries of all, all kinds. Just a random question. Do you think that because of that harsh winter that ice wine would be more plentiful? No, they're different things. Um, for ice wine, you need to know that you're going to keep a certain amount of grapes on the vine and to harvest that. And, and okay. But if you, if you didn't think that that was going to happen, then you you wouldn't have. And um, I think ice wine for us is a novelty. It, it's certainly something that winemakers need to do uh, to showcase their skill and their ability and our climate and our somewhereness. Um, but that is, uh, that's like maple syrup in the sense that it's a token of Canada, um, to export, I think more than anything. Um, I don't know when the last time you were in a restaurant and decided to order a glass of ice wine for dessert. Not very often. Not very often. My father is a big ice wine drinker. It's an old school. But but are you really, is somebody really a, a big time ice wine drinker? Right. I mean, he always had one in the in the freezer, got, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I yeah. do too, because right. I got it as a gift that I'm never going to open. <laughs> and it's in the freezer and, and it stays forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, Jesus. I mean, that's desperate times for desperate measures if I'm going to open <laughs> Listen, the ice wine. When the wine. apocalypse comes, you're going to have all the ice, dry, ice wine you can drink, Of course. David. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. But anyways, it's a treasure, and it's a great thing to have and, and a gesture to to those who can't make it. Um, you know, when I went to California a few years ago, bringing ice wine to California was, was something... A novelty. A novelty, and, and that was something that I could proudly give as a gift to people who made wine in California. And, well, they uh, don't even know what ice is. You know, and they don't even know where we are still. You yeah, know, well, California that's, is. that's the other end of that joke. Sure, sure. Sure. Tell me more about the slow food movement and how Victor prides himself on that and you yourself as a chef and, and how you feel that that really represents, you know, your style of cooking. I think slow food is very important to uh, the continuing education of food and where it comes from and, and heritage and tradition of cooking methods as much as uh uh, as much as it's important to keep the you know the strain of ingredients alive slow food was uh extremely important for me in 2008 it was life changing i attended the terra madre as a uh, a torontonian delegate uh, representing my city my country going to uh turin italy um i don't know there may have been 200 delegates maybe 1000 delegates from canada um, all of which, all of who were like-minded, uh, there for the same purpose, the same cause to, um, to keep food and tradition alive. Um, from that trip, I mean, we were, it's, it's almost as though, you know, you're given that opportunity to swallow the red pill and, and go through life being blind or, or swallow the blue pill and, and have your eyes forced to be open all the time. And that trip was certainly swallowing the blue pill. Uh, you know, you you just are you become aware of of mass production and and terrified of it, and you become aware of the people who are really controlling, uh, who have the joystick in their hand and are controlling 
our destiny in food and in, in you, you get to watch as though some are you know just victim and slave to to the masses and uh it's terrifying you know be it gasoline be it you know looking out be it traffic in our city right now we're all slaves to that and sure there are those who are are thinking that they're doing better uh, for the environment or for anti-gridlock or what have you. But, um, you know, I don't think that it's any different or better. And, and, yeah, I should just park the car and walk. And, I mean, that's how I got here today. I mean, it took me far less time than if I even thought of driving oh. over. Yeah, of course. Um, but, you know, we're, we're all slave and victim to uh production in some way shape or form and like i said to get off topic but terra madre opened my eyes that uh we have to work harder to be uh more encouraging of change or in in actually just trying to hold on to some of those things that we we hold so dear that we don't want to change and maybe that's even the the bigger thing is 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 not change in a world that continues to change all the time. Um, Do you think Europe has more of a slow food mentality because of the old school? Well, again, what we as a nation have a problem in is, is our size and how many people we have living here. Europe, just by proximity doesn't have the challenges we have because, um, you know, there's so many people who live that information and, and things are, are passed on to each other so much quicker and, and uh, are, are much more readily available. But Canada's more multicultural. Wouldn't you think that would carry over? I mean, you have a lot of these immigrants. There's still so many miles to cross. Sure. And that's, uh, that's, that's what happens. Um, and when we talk about local and and 100 kilometer diet and those types of things um we've got 3500 kilometers to span uh if if i'm getting seafood from the west coast and it's canadian um i'm still having the same carbon footprint as if i'm getting from water from, from um the the channel the english channel or something oh, of that sure. nature oh sure yeah or the other side of the pond yeah. sure so uh you have to be i think what slow food has done for me and and it's opened my eyes i i can't shut them uh, although sometimes i want to desperately well you did take the blue pill and uh and then now i feel as though and back in 2008 i felt it was my goal to to beat that on everybody I encountered, whereas now I, I'm much more comfortable in the selection process of, of who's willing to dabble with the blue pill and, and who still just wants to go through life as a red. And um, Which a lot of Torontonians, where I call them sheeple. Sheeple. And sometimes I wish I were still a sheeple. I know, but I mean, you, but, you, you yeah. say that because of where you are now. Sure. You know what I mean? I... I it's funny because I love, you know, I, I love getting my money's worth when it comes to eating in the, in this city. And, and don't get me wrong, that can mean, you know, something extravagant and something very, very simple, you know. But again, it's that expectation. And 
I mean, I've had, you know, the simplest handmade dumplings in Chinatown that cost 50 cents a dumpling and some of them cost a dollar a dumpling. But it's it's really it's funny how much awareness will cause you to question some aspects, you know, sure. and it, and it's it's good to be aware and it's not good to be aware. I think at the end of the day, it's probably good to be aware oh, I, I would and uh, it's probably the better side of the coin. But um it's a it's a smaller side of the coin. If you could live and eat in one European country for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Uh, England. Wow! Did not expect that answer. You have to give me a good reason why, and I and I'm sure that I can understand meat pies, beer, you know. Well, uh, London, fair London, women. London in in general. Um, Curry. I think is very similar to Toronto. It's extremely multicultural. Uh, there was a familiarity for me when I was in London that I, I have when I'm at home in Toronto. Um, What's your background? Uh, well, I'm born in Canada uh, of Scottish and of Ukrainian uh, ancestry, um, both of which I, I hold dear for different reasons. Um, on the Scottish side, I, I enjoy golf. And on the Ukrainian side, I, I do like Eastern European food. Uh, but also, that's my grandparents on that side of things uh, were farmers. They were in touch with the soil. They were the, the people who sort of, I embrace every time I, you know, tie the apron on. So what about London? What's uh, the food style that you're, like, what's a, what style of London food are we talking? Well, the same. I could have anything that I felt as though I wanted. Having been here in Toronto, I, I, I feel as though it would be hard to live in another city where you couldn't just wake up and say, I, I, I think I need to eat Chinese food and go and have incredible Chinese food. Right. I need Indian tonight and go and find it and it'd be And not excellent. even just Indian. I need Pakistani. Yeah. You know, you could, I need could, Goa. I need North. I need South. Uh, you know, we have Little Italy. We have two Little Italys. We have, we have two Chinatowns. We have, uh, you know, the whole Eastern European neighborhood, Roncesvalles to Bloor West. Uh, Little Poland, if you will. And, and I think I need that. I need that stimulation uh, as a cook, as uh, as a person, as a diner, um, to not say anything negative towards, well, I mean... It's opening up a giant can of worms. But being in Italy, uh, I ate Italian food. That's what I ate. And that's all you ate. And that's all we ate. And yes, there was across the board different forms of being being very good and being simple and rustic and, and fine and refined. And I enjoyed every part of it. But by the end of my trip, if I had another bowl of pasta with pecorino cheese and black peppercorn, I I would have lost it. So... Um, somewhere where, and, and I mean, my travel in Europe is limited uh, to a small handful of cities. But it would have to be somewhere that certainly embraced many different types of culture and cuisine just to keep uh, me interested. Although living in, in Europe... It'd be easy to just get on a plane or a boat or a, a drive and and be in the actual real place, right? Which um, would also be probably pretty fantastic in its own right. And we can do that here in Toronto, little sure. pockets all it's over. Called you the can TTC. Feel like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, tell me, 
when you're representing Canada in Italy, what are some of the questions they're asking you about Canadian food? Is it, first of all, is there a difference between Canadian and Acadian food? Oh, that, that, there's a giant difference. And Acadian is, you know, maritime where it starts off with um, your proximity to water and, and, uh, and certainly a French influence. And, you know, the, the first New Orleans food was really Acadian. And so I guess if you were to talk about Canadian food and Canadiana and when I opened this restaurant, Patriot, what I used for inspiration were certainly um, what did people eat when they first arrived in this country uh, that, you know, was nothing more than a fur trading uh, Hudson Bay Company sort of thing. And that was split pea and ham, and that was um, the different spices that would sort of go in, in Cajun cooking. Um, uh, comfort, you know, ultimate comfort and things that had been cured that easily travelable. And of course, it's not, I guess, very um, exotic. Um, but I don't think Canadian food is meant to be exotic. I don't think, um, I don't think that's who we are as people. We, uh, enjoy comfort and then it's about refining comfort. And so that's sort of where I think the Canadiana Canadian food starts and, um, where it is today is, is refining comfort food and classics. Um, the most important thing I think about Canadian food is is following the seasons. And if if you know, membership in slow food, if if slow food can do anything, it, it encourages the idea that we are a four season country and you eat what you should eat uh when it's grown. When it tastes good. When it tastes good, when it's right, plucked from the earth or or what have you. I can only imagine uh, when you were in Europe. But we're 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 slowly and or quickly becoming, you know, a, a country of three seasons, and soon even right, two. Right, right, right. And which it, is like Europe, which is what I'm sure getting sure. at, right? Um, but it, it will be the food and the recipes of each season that we'll hold on to, um, and that ultimately will be will be um, Canadian cuisine. It won't be dissimilar from what an American in the Midwest or you know Upper State New York or Seattle may call American food, but it's just a border. But uh, that's ultimately uh, our cuisine. When you were in Europe, I just wanted to touch on this before we move on. You know, as these countries only do live in a two-season, if if at most, you know, year, what was, like, the most common misconception about Canadian food? Well, did they, I mean... Anybody, everyone thinks that we're under ice all the time. So right. it's it's a cold, desolate, gigantic place. And much of Canada is that uh, a lot of the time. Toronto is different uh, than, I think, 99% of the rest of the country. <laughs> um, the Golden Horseshoe, you know, is... Uh, is certainly a, a different place than a lot of other places in Canada. Um, we get four seasons. We do get four seasons. We have um, 
We have farm and city close. I mean, yeah, if you were to think of comparing uh, a country, a small country in Europe to anywhere in Canada that could be similar, it, it certainly could be the golden horseshoe. And that's the size of a country in, in Europe. And Europe has a more farm-to-table sensibility. Sure. And, and in that, we are close to farms. We're able to sustain ourselves in some capacity. Um, it's when you start talking about the the fields and fields and fields of wheat and barley that are so important to the, the fabric of our nation that are thousands of miles away. We need transport and we need the ability to bring that stuff to uh, not only production, but uh, be able to export it uh, to satisfy the needs of the rest of the world. Can we touch on your experience with Top Chef Canada? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think I'm bound legally not to talk about a lot of it. Um, well, tell us what you can talk about. I mean, as somebody who's a fan, who's watching a lot of up-and-coming chefs really make a name for themselves in a city that's overpopulated with a lot well, of I, I think I did Top Chef for the... I did it for the same reason that I would think most do it. Um, they're tired of being an armchair uh, quarterback, you know, sitting on watching the show saying, oh, I could do this, I could do that. You know, I was... When the opportunity arose that... Canadians could be on the same type of program that we were watching from the States for uh, a number of years. I mean, I was a giant fan of Tom Colicchio and, and, and Top Chef America. Um, so when Top Chef Canada <clears throat> excuse me, came along, of course, I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to play the game. I wanted to... Uh, all of those things, all of those times where you just sort of sat and said, well, I would do this and I would do that. Um, I wanted to have that opportunity to see how I would actually compare. Not necessarily, although it was a contest amongst peers, um, but I wanted to see how I would physically uh, challenge. And I was certainly competing against myself uh, throughout that contest. Was it stressful? The stresses came from... Uh, Yes, yes, it was stressful. It was stressful because in the beginning I didn't want to fail and I felt as though I was failing and I knew I was better than uh I was better than my own performance in the beginning. Uh at about the halfway mark I started to enjoy myself and have fun and uh and remember the reason that I was there, which was just that, was to, to create and push my own boundaries, uh, but to play the games that they spend millions of dollars to produce. You know, um, I'm a, an extremely competitive person by nature. Uh, I'm not going to get in the Olympic Games for any sport. And uh, this was my opportunity to compete uh, in a field that I had, um, you know, spent years training on. And uh, this was my Olympics. This was my opportunity to uh, to compete in an environment where I felt as though I was ready to compete in. 
did it sometimes feel too much like a game and not enough like they're not really showing my skills here i'm i'm playing too much to their rules and and it, it was hard to well it, it was always a game every i mean it got kind of corny and it, it does get kind of goofy but and i think that's the demise of cooking television shows is that they're dwelling more on the insanity as opposed to the how-to and which makes a lot of people think i can do that but uh, at the same time you want to encourage that you want to encourage uh ability um not the ridiculous right and uh you can always see through the, the the game that they would put in front of you and at the end of the day you needed to cook and present something that looked good tasted good and and within a timeline um is there a competition that sticks out for you maybe something you wish you did better at or you think you nailed it and didn't get the recognition or something you did get the recognition for well, at the end of the day, it is a no. You know what? Um, the I made chicken noodle soup in the form of a, a terrine, uh, a molded dish, and that was an excellent dish. It was uh, the outline of the contest was to recreate a to put a molecular spin or a, a, a modern twist on comfort food classics. And I drew, or I, I can't remember how I got that. I think I had to, yeah, spin, spin a wheel, draw or, a knife, yeah. something of that nature. Uh, I got chicken noodle soup. And I had just, in a previous contest, done very poorly. And that's, you know, on my mind uh, or is you know a, a dark spot on my mind in the contest i was fortunate to get through to the next round and then i was able to really do my best and so it was sort of that one two punch of having failed and been given the opportunity to get back up and try and and to succeed so that was uh in itself you know a good couple of days you must have made some pretty cool friends in your industry that you never thought you would have been able to connect with? Uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, we were from all over the country. Uh, it was exciting to see people from all over the country being so excited about being in our hometown. Uh, our residence was actually a stone throw from my my restaurant, so it was kind of bizarre in just the sense that I was very close to my home, but at the same time very removed as we were so isolated. And yeah, you were forced to be fast friends with uh, 16 or 18 people. And I'm certainly of the nature to get along. I don't want to create an enemy or, or have uh, bad blood with anyone, especially knowing that we were going to be... Uh, I would need their help as much as they would need my help somewhere down the line. I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you this, but... Are, you think you'll be considered for some sort of Canadian Masters? I mean, you you were a finalist of the second season. Um, I don't know that. If I don't know did, that they you? were going to do such a program. Yeah, they might. Um, I actually feel like uh, I don't know that I would be a competitor. Uh, I feel as though I am now of the 
uh, a Top Chef master, I think that I would go into that program. I kind of felt as though I was going into it as a Top Chef master. Okay. Uh, even though we didn't have that sure. caliber of program. Um, you know, the the experiences that I have certainly are, are very similar to those who would be on the American program as it is master's. Um, I look to them, many of them as, again, to go back to where we started, I'm sort of in that same tier as a, a 55-year-old accomplished chef, but still uh, in the same place as, uh, as somebody who's middle-aged and in their prime. Do you find that there was a translation between people knowing your restaurant through this? Do you find you got a little bit of a boost of course, we did that as a as an opportunity to promote our restaurant, to promote our um, our unique ability to do so many different things very well, to promote um, your style. You, yeah, you know, yeah, Victor. of course, of course. Um, and yeah, when when was that? That was in two thousand and eleven or twelve. Was the season we were on? Anyways, there was a there was a great boost, and uh, it was a good. It was a good marketing tool for the restaurant, for sure. So thank you very much for the hour that you spend with us here, David. I always ask, what's the special tonight at Victor? <laughs> well, you took me out of the workplace, so I didn't come up with it today. But um... I didn't mean to put you on the spot. What, what, <laughs> what did you grab today from uh, the market that you think is going to be on the special today? At least a piece of it. You could make it up. They will never know. Well, I got, uh, you know, prenatal vitamins for my wife. Oh, okay. That's what I yeah. was picking up at the store on my way in. So uh, that was <laughs> that's the special today. For um, sure. Especially at home. But we have, uh, you know, this is the time of year in the, rest in the restaurant industry that I love, the fall. Everything is, you know, cool climate of its best. There's a great crossover between the the tomatoes and the start of root vegetables and, and storage vegetables. Uh, and the diner is starting to get hungry again. You've gone from living off of salad to salivating over a big hearty bowl of pasta or um, stews. stews and, and maybe just having two or three courses and enjoying dessert at the end of a meal instead of saying, there's no way, I have no room. So, you know, the diner is starting to be engaged with us a little more and you know the special of the day it's uh it's fun for us to be able to say that uh the whole menu is brand new and uh invigorated and inspired just because of the seasonal change well we're gonna have to have you back i'm gonna have to peek my head into victor especially now that you're open for brunch and again the victor restaurant is in the hotel le germain 30 mercer street and I just want to thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure having you for this hour. Just one real quick question. Sure. Your wife is about to, to give birth to your, to your daughter. Is she asking you for a lot of weird stuff to bring home at night after uh, restaurants close? It's really strange. Uh, well, no, it's not strange. It's I've been fortunate that there hasn't been anything bizarre. Um, you know, there's sort of left field call out for brownies or candy. Um and and actually, um, uh, I put knish on the menu, which is uh, 
beef wrapped around uh, a potato dough of sorts, pan fried, served with beetroot horseradish. And uh, she had to race into the restaurant for that. So Amazing. Uh, again, we're going to have to have you back. I'm going to come to the restaurant and we're going to talk menu. I, I feel like uh, you and I have uh, left out so much about the food aspect. We're talking about the culture and the style that we really need to break down your menu. I'm really interested to see what's uh, on uh, your special wise at Victor coming up. Again, thank you, David Christian, for coming. That's Victor Restaurant at the Hotel Le Germain, 30 Mercer Street. Thank you for coming to Speaking Duck. Thank you very much, Alex. My pleasure. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 